In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Obviously we know that Peter should not have told Jesus to depart from him. He said some really good things, as we just heard, and we'll consider them, but this was not one of them. Depart from me? Here was his only hope as a sinner. This was exactly the wrong thing to say to him who comes to forgive sins. Depart from me? No. What Peter needed and what we need is the exact opposite. We need Jesus not to depart, but to draw closer. This is the main point of our lesson. This is what Jesus does even now as his word is preached. And its meaning and import for your lives is explained. He causes the gospel to be preached so that he might come close to you. He knows where you are. The preacher doesn't. No more than Peter and his crew knew where the fish were. But the preacher doesn't need to know where you are. Jesus does. And Jesus does. He knows what he has prepared for those who hear his word and believe it. He knows what you need to hear. He knows that you need to hear it. He prepares himself to draw near to sinners by preparing you to believe that that's exactly what you are. Jesus draws close to those who hear the word of God. He departs from those who don't want to hear it. He draws closer to those who are afraid. He departs from those who imagine some reason not to be. This is illustrated very well by an event that occurred later on in Jesus' ministry, which we have recorded for us in John chapter 6, when many other disciples left because of Jesus' words to them about being the bread of life and their need to eat his flesh and drink his blood if they themselves would have eternal life. Jesus told them not to work for the bread that perishes. And they left. They preferred it. And Jesus let them go. And then he asked his twelve if they too would leave, and Peter, who learned not to depart from Jesus, because Jesus once refused to depart from him, Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This morning we hear the very first of these words of eternal life that Jesus had, and which Peter no doubt remembered for the rest of his life. Jesus' words of eternal life begin with such a simple command. It is a powerful and authoritative command, and it is extremely comforting inasmuch as our whole faith and salvation are built upon these words. This command was given to Mary when the angel Gabriel announced that she would conceive and bear the Savior. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. This command was heard by the shepherds when Gabriel announced to them that the Savior had been born. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And we hear them elsewhere in plenty, these simple words. Do not be afraid. In Mary, these words produce the beautiful, let it be to me according to your word. In the shepherds, the exciting, let us go now and see the thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. From Mary, her fearlessness produced for us the beautiful Magnificat, as her spirit rejoiced in God her Savior. From the shepherds, their fearlessness produced uncharacteristic boldness as they returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told them. 
and from you. It is by this command, do not be afraid, that we are given supernatural fearlessness, what Peter calls readiness in our epistle lesson, to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Do not be afraid. The angel said to the women at the tomb, For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Having fled in both fear and joy together, Jesus met them as they ran and told them to have only joy. Do not be afraid, he said, as they held him by the feet. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And why? Because in Galilee he would send them out to preach to all nations the cause and reason why we need not be afraid of God. Do not be afraid. This is the theme of Jesus' life. Do not be afraid. These words only bring comfort to those who are afraid. This is important. I'm not scared, says the brave little boy when the electricity goes out and mom and dad are fumbling through the dark for the candles. Maybe he isn't scared. Fine. But then, don't be afraid is meaningless to him who isn't afraid of the dark. But for one who is afraid, to one who is afraid of the light, because he knows what it reveals, or or he's afraid of what it might, these are the most wonderful words we can hear. God himself, who dwells in unapproachable light, tells us not to be afraid. And this is comforting, especially since the light is coming. And when it does, when it comes with the day that dawns at Christ's glorious return, which comes sooner now than before, and all the more obviously, as we see how wicked the world gets, there will be no brave little boys and girls then. There will be terror. All sin will be exposed. It will be light that terrifies all who do not already have the light of faith in their hearts. Sudden darkness is nothing if you have scanned the room or know it well, right? You'll manage. But sudden light, when you have grown cozy in ignorance, only to suddenly learn what only the light can show, this is true fear. This is too much. The light of God's holiness shows so much. The day of Christ's glory will be too much for all who have not learned already to be afraid, to fear what they do not fully know, to fear what the law can only show in part because of the weakness of our own flesh. The light of perfect justice will prove too much to all who have not learned to keep the light of perfect mercy in their hearts. It is exactly what Jesus means when he says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. This is what happened to Peter. He was in darkness, in the depths of darkness. He knew of the coming Christ. Yeah, he supposed he was found At your word, at your word, he said, calling him master, the master of something, maybe something spiritual. His word was great, but then the light confronted him. His power not only to judge things that are spiritual, but the power to control what is often regarded as real life.
This is what terrified Peter. This Christ, this God, who stepped out of his proper place and into Peter's proper place. This holy man was not just an expert in religious matters that only matter when they matter, you know? No, he was an expert in every matter that our lives depend on, every matter that you base your life upon. He showed Peter to be 100% dependent on him. Jesus showed his word to be more pertinent than he had realized. He didn't just touch on heady spiritual concerns. He proved that every realm of life was a spiritual concern. And he was terrified. And yet, the one he was afraid of told him not to be afraid. He had not come to judge. He had come not to expose and condemn, but to bring him into the light that only mercy can invite one into. And so the one who is the light taught Peter to have this light with him all the time. And to be this light. That is, the one who alone could judge taught Peter that he did not judge him. This light is not just the justice you thirst for against those who have wronged you. It is the mercy you need from him whom you have wronged. Namely, God. You have wronged God. It is mercy from God you need more than mercy from anyone else. The light Christ brings is the forgiveness of sins from God. Jesus told Peter not to be afraid of the light that normally comes with judging scrutiny. Instead, this light came with pardoning grace. Yes, this is the theme of Christ's life. The light came into the world, but those who loved darkness despised it. See in Peter how Jesus teaches us not to despise the light, but to love it. Not to be afraid, but to rejoice. See how Jesus teaches us not to beg this light to quit shining on our lives and souls and consciences lest it expose too much that we can handle. But to beg him always never to depart. For only in true repentance can we ask him who looks at us to keep looking at us. It is only in repentance that we see his face shining in compassion and pity and not in judgment. See therefore how Jesus taught Peter true repentance. He forgave him. When Peter asked Jesus to depart, he was begging to return to the darkness, to the coziness of his own ignorance, to where he could imagine more easily that he was all right. But that is not departing in peace, so Jesus wouldn't permit it. He told him not to be afraid, and so told him that he needn't be afraid. His sins were forgiven by his God. So let the light expose you. Let the law reveal what the night hides. Let it. For with the light that Jesus shines comes what only the gospel can reveal. And so Jesus remained with Peter and taught him how to expose sin in others for the purpose of preaching the gospel to sinners. The gospel that teaches us how Christ bore our sin unto death in order to save us. Peter had been fishing all night. Like you, he knew his trade. He was likely good at it. We know at least that his partners James and John had grown up with it, with their father Zebedee, and Peter and his brother Andrew probably learned from their dad too. 
Peter and his fellow tradesmen had been working all night, doing what they always did when working all night. Normally, this is how they caught what they needed to catch in order to pay their bills and taxes and afford the life they were accustomed to. But this night, they caught nothing. I suppose it happens here and there. It's always disappointing to work hard and get no results. And it doesn't happen less and less as you age. It actually happens more and more. You get used to it. The value of work, however, isn't just in the money you can make. It's in the wisdom you gain. No, this is easier to say once you're a little more financially established. It's true, there's no doubt. But even then, every hard and honest worker worth his salt finds that the far greater value of work is more in what it does for your sense of worth than for your fortune. It's true. Peter had as much fortune to show for his night of labor as anyone else who spent the night singing bar tunes and carousing. But Peter had a, a better conscience. He might have just as little to show and just as little to spend as the drunkard, but he had his integrity, and that's what you're after, and it's worth a lot. Peter had a wife. She spent the night alone, surely counting the value of her husband's absence by the promise of income when he returned the next day. No doubt, though, far more precious than that was the fact that she knew her husband was being responsible. Right? She knew he was doing good by her, whether he came home disappointed or not. He was working. God would provide. Work has tremendous value. It's tempting to measure its value in dollars. It always is. But such crass materialism isn't the greatest danger our self-sufficiency poses us. Self-righteousness is. What we are after is a reason not to be afraid. Peter had worked all night and caught nothing. He admitted it with no shame. He was no crass materialist. He was a hard worker like you. Who would condemn him? Rich people often have bad consciences and so can't enjoy their success. This is the reason so many celebrities can just, can't just enjoy their immense wealth and retire on a beach somewhere. Why don't they? I would, I think. No, they have to get to work doing something that folks regard as important, like climate activism or some social justice cause. They're miserable without some sense of righteousness. Poor people, on the other hand, can find all the righteousness they need in their blood and sweat. It's true. The only thing of value in this world is righteousness. As Aristotle himself said, neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness. Even heathen know this. Even pleasure seekers know this. This is why they make excuses. This is why they explain why they are right to do what they do. This is why they say things like, I was born this way, and you don't know me, or this is how I express myself. It's not enough to simply get away with sin. Folks want to appear to be good. Their excuses might be facile and weak, but they're excuses nonetheless against the accusations of a guilty conscience. And they prove that more than folks want to do what is forbidden by God or society or mom and dad, much more than they simply want to enjoy passing pleasure in the dark, 
much more than this. They want to have a good conscience while enjoying it. And to bring it all into the light and force the world to praise them as good. This is especially what we see, and it's the most infuriating part about it, as perverted corruptors of children and murderers of infant children and all sorts of moral miscreants are not content merely to get away with what they desire. They want to be praised. They want to imagine that every bright light has already exposed what it could and found them glowing. We know that we are not saved by our good works. We know this. We know this as a truth of Scripture, and Peter did too. And we know that despite how they present themselves, their works are evil. We have the light of Holy Scripture we know how to judge. But rich and pampered heirs of Western prosperity are never content to see gold fill their coffers and their lives filled with ease. See what they pursue. See why they want to control your lives. It is for righteousness. This is why they showcase their worldly penitence by promoting social causes and denouncing such things as white privilege. Their success is embarrassing to them without a righteous cause, so they pursue the righteous cause. They atone for themselves by their ostentatious acts of public virtue because they want to have a good conscience more than anything. So do you. You're not working for money. You're working because you're a man or woman of integrity, and you know it. And that's a good thing to pursue. Jesus encountered Peter precisely where it exposed him the most, in his deepest source of integrity. And that is where he encounters you. He encountered Peter in his work. It was good work. He took from Peter the sense of integrity he had in his labor. He robbed Peter of his righteousness, not just by doing Peter's work better than Peter could do it. That might have been embarrassing, no, but by showing Peter that it is only by the blessing of God that his work has any value at all. Our work has no value to pay the bills unless God blesses it. Our work likewise has no value to give us a sense of dignity unless God accepts it. What Jesus showed Peter in his great catch of fish was that Peter's sense of integrity wasn't enough and neither is yours. Whatever you do, Jesus does it better than you. All depends on whether or not we possess God's abundant grace and blessing, even if all earthly wealth depart, or for that matter, even if all earthly wealth were yours. This is what Peter learned. And so he forsook all for joy that his sins were forgiven. He learned that he could no longer stand tall with his own sense of dignity. He needed to find his worth in something greater. And so do you. Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Aristotle said that too. Well, Peter learned to know himself a bit and told Jesus to depart like a fool. 
No, Aristotle was only halfway right this time, which isn't nearly right enough. Solomon said it better. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Peter learned more than about his inadequacy, and so must you. Peter learned to fear God. He was not prepared to work harder to attain what he lacked. He was prepared to trust in Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, who had come to save him and turn his fear that Jesus would come too close into a godly, childlike fear that Jesus would ever leave. As we prayed in our intro this morning, leave me not nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. And so this is our daily goal, to leave aside all work we do, to let God do his work in us. We sanctify the Lord God in our hearts by sanctifying the Sabbath day. We sanctify the Sabbath day by hallowing his name, by gladly and hearing what Jesus sent Peter and every preacher of the gospel to preach to you. We know well that we are not saved by our works or by our obedience to the law. We are saved by grace alone through faith, lest we or anyone should boast. But, dear Christians, we learn today not to find our dignity in our work either, at least not before God. We find our daily dignity and sense of value and one another's, where the Lord Jesus confronts us with the light of his holiness, where our labors and efforts and all that keeps us away from hearing his word are all proved to be worthless and even damnable. We find our dignity where this one does not condemn us. He tells us not to be afraid of either the darkness of deceit nor the light of God's truth, but to flee the former and love the latter, for this truth catches us alive. It is the truth that God purchased us with his own blood. As true man, he lived and died for us and our sins so that he might have authority to forgive us our sins and bless everything we do. And he does. He gives us something to do. He gives us his name to praise, his mercy to receive, and his brethren to love. Our God is our brother, and he does not depart from us. Amen.